This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Pediatric Epilepsy Center of Excellence, and quite appropriately, he is going to seize the day with his talk. So, Dr. Sullivan. <laughs> So as much as I love that preliminary title, there was a slight tweak. The content is exactly the same. Um, but um, So thank you for, for uh, inviting me back. I think this is the third or maybe fourth time that I've spoken, sort of on an every other year basis. And, and often in my field, there is, in the pediatric epilepsy space, there's often not a whole lot of change. And so I always rack my brain. I'm like, what am I going to talk about that is going to engage the audience? Well, I'm happy to say that this is an extremely exciting time for pediatric epilepsy. I know this is not just a pediatric conference, but we all know that children do become adults. Uh, and so everything that you will uh, uh, see in my presentation uh, applies to, to adults. And I think it's, it's an exciting time because we are finally uh, getting some attention uh, from uh, industry to start looking at a lot of the unmet needs that our patients uh, have with ongoing seizures. Um, it's often been very challenging as a pediatric provider when new drugs come to the market to really understand what role could they play in some of our pediatric patients, and especially these patients that I'm going to talk about today that have some of these, um, in the big picture, rare syndromes, but rare in the, in the sense that I guarantee everyone in the room has uh, had one or two uh, of these patients uh, sort of cross their path. So with that... Uh, so these are my disclosures. One of the, the uh, um, some of these are relevant because I am under contracted research for some of the uh, di- with, for some of the data that I'm going to present to you uh, today. Uh, so my objectives are first to recognize some of the key clinical features of, of epilepsy syndromes, uh, to then describe how those syndromes can evolve over time. I often say that this is one of the most fascinating things about my job is I get to follow a moving target that is a developing child's brain. Uh, so just because we actually have one seizure type that may present in infancy, as we continue to follow that child over time, uh, things can change and evolve, and therefore our treatments need to change and evolve. And then the real the meat of this talk is really going to be to appraise the data behind the novel anti-epileptic drug therapies uh, in some of these specific syndromes. And just to sort of jump ahead, one of the things you're going to be talking is, about is cannabidiol. And so uh, you would probably have to be living under a rock uh, if you had not uh, seen in the, the popular media uh, of cannabis-based therapies. And we, we finally do have some data to support um, its use. So first, what is an epilepsy syndrome? So this is kind of the holy grail for a pediatric epileptologist. There's uh, no term that makes me want to have a seizure more than the term seizure disorder. Uh, you know, a cardiologist, no one tells a, a part person who has an arrhythmia that you have a cardiac rhythm disorder or someone with diabetes that you have a, a, a glucose disorder. So um, we want to use the term epilepsy. Epilepsy still has a lot of stigma. The term has a, still a lot of stigma associated with it. But in my opinion, the only way that we're going to get around that stigma is to start using, using the word in, in, in its appropriate context. But an epilepsy syndrome even goes beyond that. It, it actually gets to uh, these different bullet points. So the age of onset, uh, the different types of seizures that that patient may be having, uh, the EEG patterns, and then what we call the interictal condition. So what are these, these patients looking like in between their seizures, right? We focus a lot on what does a seizure look like, how long does it last, 
Uh, how do they act afterward? But equally important is how are these patients doing in between? Are they completely normal with no intellectual disability? Uh, are they somewhere on the intellectual disability spectrum and where? Uh, and why? Why would some of these patients who have a normal brain MRI and a normal EEG have moderate to severe intellectual disability? So that is a very important piece of the puzzle. And then really the explosion that is continuing to change our field in 2019 uh, is the genetic characterization. So we are now fairly, uh, it's fairly easy now to get an epilepsy gene panel on most of my patients. Uh, and it really is by looking at all of these different salient clinical features uh, that we are able to discover new epilepsy genes. So why? Is this just something that I can come up here and have a couple slides to be able to, to speak to speak about and make myself sound smart? No, absolutely not. Um, if someone calls me on the phone from the emergency room and says, Joe, I have one of your patients here with Dravet syndrome, which is one of the syndromes we're going to talk about, that already paints a clear picture in my mind of probably how that child presented, what medicines they're on, what medicines they may have been on before, and what I need to actually be thinking about. So not only does it lead to a more accurate diagnosis rather than my cringed seizure disorder term, but it really does lead to improved management. Uh, it, it leads to targeted workup, and oftentimes I think we can actually limit our workup, right? We, don't, we no longer need to, to embark on what I would call the shotgun approach of, of working up these patients for rare inherited metabolic disorders when I was in training not so long ago, uh, and we actually can start to suspect these specific diagnoses on, on cl clinical grounds. It also helps with counseling uh, and prognosis and certainly helps with uh, genetic counseling in terms of uh, risk to uh, future siblings or risk for that uh, specific patient's um, uh, children. So we're just going to go through really a couple of cases just to keep you engaged. I guess it's the pleasure of speaking directly after, after lunch. So, uh, and these will, um, maybe these, these different cases will start out being familiar and, and get a little bit uh, less familiar uh, as we go on. So case one is an eight-month-old uh, male infant with normal birth history who presents to the pediatrician's office uh, where mom's saying he's, he's starting to have those uh, startling like he was a baby. The episodes occur most often upon awakening, and they don't occur uh, in isolation, and they last 15 minutes. So the first thing that you know we hear from parents, what do you mean that it's lasting 15 minutes? So you have to actually ask, is, it, is, it, is the entire event lasting 15 minutes, or is it an on-off? Is it a cluster uh, of these events? Uh, and so as it turns out, when you ask that question, it's a cluster. So these startle spells are, are happening uh, this, the individual spells themselves only last a few seconds, but they are clustering over a 15-minute period. The exam is completely normal, and unfortunately, no episodes are witnessed. So the, the pediatrician very rightfully had a concern for about what this diagnosis was and sent them in for video EEG monitoring, and I'll play this video here. So you'll see a baby with pretty normal tone, nice flexor uh, um, uh, of the arms and, and, and legs here. And then we see this little startle slash crunch slash spasm, right? And you'll see this kind of occurs almost like a metronome. We can kind of count a few seconds here, and then there's this, this um, uh, sort of uh, adduction of the arms and, and flexion at the hips. Um, and completely in between, uh, in between these episodes is, is actually completely normal. If you could see his face, he's actually eyes are open. He's very uh, awake uh, and interactive. Uh, eventually, the parent comes over to the side and pushes the button to let us know that the, this was, is the clinical event 
uh, of interest. You'll also notice that it's fairly symmetric. So this is where we uh, in the EEG lab um, start, start to geek out a little bit and say, oh, did that left arm move before the right arm? Uh, we do these types of things. But these are pretty symmetric. And the reason why we geek out about that is, is if we have asymmetric spasms, we start to wonder, is there something uh, you know, on the opposite side of the brain in terms of malformation of cortical development or potentially a brain injury that could be driving this process? So this is this child, actually this child's EEG. I always say to my trainees, this is maybe one of the only EEG patterns that would be on your pediatric boards. Um, so this is hypsarrhythmia. Uh, and the important thing to note here, um, is there a pointer? Is this it? Oh, yeah, great. Lots well, of big pointer. So hypsarrhythmia. Um, basically, um, the blue is on the left side and the right, red is on the right. Hopefully you could appreciate that I could turn this upside down and it wouldn't look any different. That's not how a baby's EEG is supposed to look like. And the other take-home um, point here is that hypsarrhythmia is an EEG pattern in between seizures. So this is the pattern that these poor children are living with 24 hours a day. The seizure is this. It's this one-second period. Um, and so you can imagine, so why would these one-second seizures um, lead to the intellectual disability that the, um, the majority of these patients um, uh, uh, ultimately go on to have, they, it actually doesn't. It's not this one-second seizure. It's the other 23 hours and 55 minutes a day that their EEG is looking like this firestorm of activity. So uh, this specific condition, um, while we want to treat the patient uh, about 95% of the time in pediatric epilepsy, uh, this is a, uh, a case where not only do we want to treat the patient, i.e. the seizures, we also want to try to normalize this EEG as quickly and uh, as we possibly can. So I gave it away. This is infantile spasms, also known as West syndrome. And I'm just going to sort of go through this schematic here. This is all in the syllabus. I'm not going to go through every single line, but I wanted you to have all this data um, to refer to. So the hallmark are these extensor spasms. Um, the EEG pattern is classical uh, hypsarrhythmia. One important point is let's say that, that we did that EEG and the, uh, and the EEG was normal. Um, the, the question then is, did you capture sleep? You actually, uh, in, early on in the diagnosis of infantile spasms, if you just do a waking EEG, the EEG can be normal. You have to be sure that you capture sleep. And so you haven't captured sleep. That's one of the reasons why we often just admit these babies so that they, we actually can get a prolonged recording and record uh, sleep. The etiology um, is, has really not changed over the years. The, the, the top two are either malformations of cortical development or, or um, neonatal encephalopathy, usually due to some prenatal or perinatal uh, uh, insult. Um, but the list of genetic disorders that are, that are uh, potentially causal for infantile spasms um, continues to grow. What I'm going to talk about next is really how our treatment uh, has, has evolved. Um, the mainstay of treatment is still steroids, either ACTH, which is the injectable, uh, uh, is an injectable medication, or high-dose prednisolone, and then vigabatrin. And what I'm going to show you is some data that is really um, making us realize that this is one of the few what we call pediatric epilepsy emergencies. It's, it's akin to you know, a, a child coming in with a new diagnosis of leukemia, and, and we want to throw the kitchen sink at them, literally, almost like an induction therapy to try and not only control their seizures, but to, to try and normalize um, that EEG. You can see here that the spasm, spasms, actually even left untreated, will often go away, but then it's kind of like the damage has, has already um, um, been done. So this is one sort of alarming study that just tells us that even in 2000, 
this was 18, uh, in 2019, we can do better. So they surveyed 100 patients with infantile spasms, and then they looked at the, the, the time to the uh, visit with the first, what we call effective provider, which would really be a child neurologist. The median time was 25 days about, so already three weeks have passed, and, um, and only a quarter of them were evaluated within the first week, and this really is our goal. We know that earlier is better. And, and the common theme here was that the, the moms usually would say something's not right, something's wrong, right? And if there's one thing that I remember from pediatric residency, and uh, always trust the mom, right? If something's wrong, you better be worried. Um, and then the respondents um, stated that pediatricians uh, and, and neurologists were basically just unfamiliar with infantile spasms. So hopefully, as you go home today, you will no longer be unfamiliar. And then where, where this is important, I think, is this is a, a paper that was just, just came out um, about a year ago in Lancet Neurology, really getting at looking at that sort of induction sort of um, approach, where not only using, uh, up till five years ago, we would start out one treatment, steroids, that didn't work, we'd move on to the second treatment. Uh, knowing that, that there's a high rate of le- relapse, this group actually looked at what if we just threw both the hormonal treatment, which we um, classify as the steroidal treatment, um, plus vigabitrin, and it turns out this is uh, pretty much the, almost the highest spasm-free rate that has ever been uh, reported um, in the literature compared to hormone therapy, uh, therapy alone. And the reason why this is important, because if you can get these patients, more patients spasm-free and get them spasm-free sooner, that we know that that leads to, well, like all things in neurology, it's dependent on the underlying cause. So if you have someone with uh, really severe brain injury, um, that's going to be ultimately what predicts how they do um, developmentally. But in those kids that maybe have infantile spasms of unknown cause, the earlier we can get them under control translates into um, uh, better uh, outcomes in terms of uh, IQs. And we'll have, you can ask questions. Uh, we're going to sit down here uh, about each of these uh, sort of scenarios. So case number two, moving up a little bit older into the age spectrum. So a 10-month-old female with normal birth presents to your office after beco- coming to the ER for their first, uh, after their second febrile seizure. The first seizure was at six months, two, mo- two uh, days after their vaccines, and lasted 15 minutes. So already a few red flags there. Six months is a little young. 15 minutes is a little long. Uh, and then the seizure last night was 10 minutes, and only appeared to be on one side of the body, and she was diagnosed with acute otitis media. So someone may look at this and be like, you know, 10-month-old, normal baby, um, two febri- three febrile seizures, febrile seizures are common, reassurance, don't worry about it, go home. Uh, hopefully at the end of this talk you will realize that that would be an error. Um, so development is normal, uh, starting to cruise, having mommy and daddy, no family history, and neurologic exam is normal. So this is Gervais syndrome. So this is something that um, I have, uh, has become one of my clinical and research interests over the last six or seven years. I'm going to go into some of the clinical trials um, that basically um, have led to the approval of novel medications. And I would argue that had these drugs not been studied in this specific syndrome, we may not actually have them available to us today. So the core phenotype for these, these children uh, and what makes it, I think, so challenging to make the diagnosis, you really have to have it sort of uh, uh, on your radar screen, um, is that it usually occurs in normal kids between five and eight months. Their initial seizures often are prolonged but doesn't, don't always have to be. In the normal development, right, that's the one thing that often makes us just feel reassured that it just can't be one of these genetic um, catastrophic epilepsies. 
But then it's the evolution, right? These seizure epilepsy syndromes tell a story. The subsequent months, you start to see more febrile seizures and afebrile seizures. And then there has, has been an association with these seizures occurring in the setting of vaccine. The patient still should be vaccinated. The vaccines do not cause the syndrome. Uh, and people have actually looked at this, and there is no difference between those patients that are vaccinated, unvaccinated, or whether or not their seizures occurred proximate or not proximate. And then, again, these pa patients e evolve over time. And so there's a bit of a, a, a sort of menu approach here um, that was published about 10 years ago that if you basically, this is before you even see the patient. You can get all of this over the phone from the parent. Um, so if their first seizure occurred less than seven months, if they've had five seizures before their first birthday, it's, that's five points. And if any one of the seizures was prolonged, that's seven points. All you need is six points to strongly, strongly suggest that one should order uh, um, targeted gene testing and suspect the clinical diagnosis of Dravet syndrome. I would actually argue if you are unable to get um, genetic testing, do not be afraid to still give a person this diagnosis. This is still a clinical diagnosis because about 20% of patients who present in the exact same way will still not have a mutation in the SCN1A gene, but that does not mean they have Dravet syndrome. Uh, that does not mean that they do not have Dravet syndrome. So I think this is very, um, a very uh, helpful sort of rating scheme to sort of know, to, to help us um, determine when we should suspect it. So the reason why I feel I wanted to talk to this, like Dravet syndrome, yes, it's rare. It occurs in about 1 in 15,000 uh, patients. That's rare, but not that rare, um, is that this, uh, this syndrome in, in a study of, of uh, pharmaceutical-grade purified cannabidiol published in the New England Journal uh, just two years ago as what, as what the pivotal study that led to cannabidiol's approval as an anti-epileptic drug just this past October. And so in this study, um, they actually enrolled patients uh, who had uh, Gervais syndrome. You can see this is a severe epilepsy population. At baseline, they're having about 12 convulsive seizures per month. Um, and the, the two groups were equally represented here. And then if you look in those that received cannabidiol, it went down by about half compared to no change in placebo. And then when you take into account all the statistics and whatnot, the overall median reduction was about 39% compared to 13% placebo which is uh, statistically significant, but I would actually argue is also clinically significant, right? You have someone who's going um, from, from 14 seizures a month down to six. And so I had lived the, the sort of era of uh, before there was a pharmaceutical grade of cannabidiol happening. I had so many families coming in. What about CBD? What about CBD? What about CBD? Um, and we just really didn't know. You know I think all of us felt that it worked, um, but it was really anxiety-provoking for the caregiver as well as the physician to say, yeah, you can go to this store, or you can go to Amazon and drop this in your basket, and you might be CBD. It might not. Just try a little bit, and if it works, great. Um, so this is a, a sort of um, a very uh, well-known uh, adult epileptologist that wrote an editorial to this uh, manuscript saying, cannabinoids for epilepsy, real data at last. So this kind of shows uh, a little bit more specifically uh, how these patients, all these patients did. Um, so the, the green line is actually placebo. The blue line is the, uh, is, uh, the treatment group. And you can see the, the number of patients that had a 50% um, reduction in seizures. So the, the drug differentiated itself from placebo at all uh, sort of treatment time points. Uh, and then you can see some of these didn't actually reach statistical significance. But again, parents and families don't care about statistical significance. If their kid is the one that gets the 75% uh, reduction in seizures, they don't care if it's a p-value of 0.1. 
Um, so, um, but this was enough to get it approved. Um, and so we're excited to actually uh, to have that as a treatment option. So next is this drug that you will um, very likely be hearing about um, this fall. It was just submitted um, to the FDA as a new drug application, again, uh, for the treatment of Dravet syndrome. Uh, I wish I had time to go into the whole story, but essentially the reason why this drug fenfluramine, which was one of the active compounds in the fen-fen diet back in the 90s, was even being considered for Dravet syndrome was really by complete accident. It was just that a, a group in Belgium had started a few kids back in the, uh, in the early 90s on fenfluramine for behavior issues who also had epilepsy, and their epilepsy improved. And then they went back and looked at those kids, and lo and behold, many of them had Dravet syndrome. And so this launched a whole uh, uh, renewed interest of could this uh, actually be uh, a drug that has a, a more widespread anti-epileptogenic um, potential. And so very similar study design was done, um, and the demographics were very similar to the New England Journal um, paper that I just showed you. Uh, average uh, monthly seizures were somewhere between 25 and 40 convulsive seizures per month. Um, and this is the, is the data. So this is the percent reduction in seizures compared to placebo. So placebo is already uh, included into this. So 64% reduction in the high-dose group and a 33% reduction in low-dose group. So keep in mind, these are patients that have a very, very high seizure burden and really have already exhausted most, if not all, of the conventionally available anti-epileptic drugs. Uh, the, uh, and, and, um, and the median number of drugs that these patients were actually on, you had to be on a stable drug regimen to enter the study, was somewhere between two and, um, and three drugs. Furthermore, this is what I, uh, um, because I was uh, one of the investigators on this study, this is the slide that I love to show because, you know, 50% reduction, yes, that's great, but there's a lot of drugs that have a 50%, you know, result in a 50% reduction in seizures, especially in our refractory patients. But how can we do better than that, right? Can we, can we really push the envelope a bit? And so for the first time, now we actually have 45% of these patients having a greater than 75% reduction in seizures. So now we're getting into treatment effects, which I think are, are life-changing for these patients and, and their families. Uh, and then lastly, what about seizure-free, right? Have we, have we given up uh, on seizure freedom? Um, just as uh, uh, a few years ago, my opening sort of, when I made a diagnosis of Dravet syndrome, I would tell families that you really need to reset your expectations, that seizure freedom is just not, not really a, a, an achievable goal. Um, I still think that that's probably the case for most patients, but um, in this study, we looked at how many patients actually were either seizure-free or near-seizure-free, right? The unfortunate thing is in a study, once you have a single seizure, you can never then again be seizure-free from that intervention, right? So we said, well, what about in this 14 weeks, if someone was having 25 seizures a month and then they had one seizure in three months, that's almost as good um, as seizure-free, and in, the, in this high-dose group, it was 25% of patients, and the low-gross, 13%, and none in placebo. So again, these are the data that are being um, submitted to the FDA, and, and it was just submitted in, in February, and we hope that this drug will get uh, a, approval um, this fall. Okay, case number three. This is the last case. So, so a little bit older kid, and you'll see a little bit of a theme here. So a history of infantile spasms. Uh, who responded favorably to treatment. Someone gave them the, the combination therapy of, uh, of steroids and, and vigabatrin. 
Um, but then um, the mom started noted that, that when he was standing, he would have an abrupt fall. Uh, and she would also notice that um, when he was sleeping, it would appear as if he was trying to sit up or stretch, and his whole body would stiffen. The history was significant for uh, developmental delay. He did not start walking until 20 months. And the sort of salient uh, features of his current development, where he had no expressive speech but was able to follow some simple commands, such as pointing to body parts. So here's a video of one of his seizures. You can notice the helmet. So already there's a little bit of a red flag that something's going on here. Okay, so it's pretty quick. Oh, let me go back. Sorry. Go back. So you can see, luckily, mom was standing there and holds him. Okay, and so again, as the epilepsy specialist that likes to geek out and play these videos in slow motion, what do you see? You see a head drop, right? So if he, if he was standing in the middle of the floor, he would have fallen. But also, hopefully what you can see, I'll play that again, is arms. Arms go up, right? So this is not a pure atonic seizure, right? Is there a little stiffening component? Um, is that actually a myoclonic component? Um, and so for the purposes of, of studies and, and um, study design, we have basically as a pediatric epilepsy community decided to just lump all these together into drop attacks, right? Because it's a seizure type that would result in a fall, and these are the, the seizures that are most disabling for these patients. So then different child, but again, back to the, the other type. So a little... What we see there is stiffening that kind of clusters a bit, right? And so one other sort of pet peeve of mine as, a, as an epileptologist, second to seizure disorder, is that every single seizure that someone sees is a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. It's almost like it's one word, generalized tonic-clonic. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, in fact, it's the minority of seizures that occur are actually generalized tonic-clonic. So if you have to think about what that is, generalized, so both sides, tonic, stiffening, clonic, jerking, right? In this seizure, right, we see tonic. We see the stiffening, uh, and I can play it again. Um, we don't necessarily see the clonic. Now, this could be confusing because, you know, is, is that a, he's stiff, and then there's a little jerk, and then he's stiff again. Um, but once you've seen a tonic-clonic seizure, you will know that this is not that, okay? So this is pretty much a cluster of tonic seizures that occur during sleep. And so what is this syndrome? I must have left out my, my answer there. This is Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, okay? So Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, again, it occurs. It's this, these epilepsy syndromes that are evolving over time. So they occur a little bit later um, with a peak around age three to five. Um, the, the hallmark are these tonic axial seizures and atonic seizures, which I just showed you. Um, there are many other seizure types can occur. Um, the EEG often has characteristic findings of what we call slow spike and wave or these, uh, or these uh, fast activity. Um, the etiology is often very similar to infantile spasms in West syndrome. And in fact, uh, a very high percentage of patients who have West syndrome will evolve into uh, Lennox-Gastaut. The treatments are sort of the, the broad-spectrum medications that hopefully you all have have heard about, but now one that's entering onto the scene is cannabidiol because I showed you the study of cannabidiol with Dravet syndrome. Uh, the same uh, um, company uh, did a similar study in a, in a group of patients with uh, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, and here uh, are those, uh, uh, here's those data. So again, we're looking at the drop seizure, so it doesn't matter if you stiffen then drop or if you just drop or if you arms go up and drop. If you drop, you drop. 
And there's a very uh, detailed definition in these protocols uh, that you can imagine, like, well, what if the head just nods a little bit? And so you can imagine the, the, the challenge in t- trying to design these studies, and it's all based on, on parental or caregiver observation that is determining the primary endpoint. But what you can see here is that these patients also um, had a very um, uh, high percentage, of, I didn't include it in here, but the, um, it's about 80 seizures per month these patients are having. Um, and so you can see that in the placebo, there still is a placebo responder rate that's quite high. So what is the placebo responder rate? I wish I knew. Um, my theory is that this is just the background noise of what happens in an in unpredictable disorder um, that is epilepsy. And if you can imagine if someone's head drops and the parent was had their head turned, they may not be able to count every single seizure reliably, but we do have to demonstrate that these drugs uh, uh, can be superior to placebo. But you can see that there was, a, again, a 40% reduction um, in, the, in the higher dose uh, group of 20 milligrams per kilogram, uh, although not dramatically different. So, so the, the, pa- the, the package insert is basically saying that you should try to get to this dose, uh, and that if it's tolerated and you still uh, have um, more, uh, if you still want additional try. Um, uh, a chance at additional efficacy, you can increase the dose. Again, looking at all seizures, uh, acknowledging that some of these seizures are even more challenging to account, there did seem to be uh, a change. And herein lies, you know, the problem. So non-drop seizures. So these are the, the seizures where the kid stares off into space, maybe drools a little bit. Um, is that a seizure? Maybe, maybe not. Um, and you can see the placebo responder rate here is 35%. And I think this just gets into why those seizure types really cannot be counted in some of the primary outcome measures for these studies. Uh, And then again, this looks at the 50% reduction and the 75% reduction. So 25% of patients in the higher dose group of cannabidiol had a 75% reduction in seizures. This also was not statistically significant. It's in the manuscript, so I put it up here. Um, But again, if you look at it, it's, it's dramatically different than what was, was achieved in placebo. So I think it's something that is at least reasonable to uh, hope for in this highly refractory patient population. So to conclude, um, hopefully I've shown you, at least, at least in these three epilepsy syndromes, that they can evolve over time, and it's our job to educate families, caregivers, other healthcare providers of what to expect um, so if I have a patient who, with infantile spasms who responds to therapy, I will tell them that you're not out of the woods yet. Um, be on the lookout for some of these other things. Um, what I think has really been exciting is that these specific epilepsy syndrome diagnoses have allowed, not only allowed, but they've um, engaged uh, more interest from the pharma community to get into the, this uh, niche epilepsy space, and it has allowed them to design uh, these clinical trials with that specific population in mind. Um, And that, uh, this is, I guess, is my hanging up my shingle. If you have a patient who's not responding to drugs and they have not seen an actual epileptologist, uh, in my opinion, um, they really need to be referred for at least a one-time evaluation to see if we can have somewhat of of a tailored treatment approach. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.